0: as we continue to talk about this prayer of Jesus, referred to uh, in some traditions, and some Bibles, as the high priestly prayer of Jesus. Now, many of us have experiences with the emotional event, the emotional occurrence of when a loved one will leave on a long vacation, or perhaps you're more familiar with somebody who maybe goes away to work out of town for an extended period of time. Now, for some of us who have gone through that young family stage where you always have your kids with you, there comes that momentous day when you and your spouse can finally go on a vacation without the kids. Remember that first time that may have happened? If you're a young family, it hasn't happened yet and you're looking forward to that day. And if you will recall, quite often you will walk out the door and you'll be thinking, Woohoo! We're free! And then about one day in, you lean over and you go, I miss the kids. (laughs) It doesn't take too long. For other of us, we're familiar with the business trip idea. We have a a spouse, a a good friend, a loved one who works out of town for for extended periods of time. Perhaps you're married to somebody, you know somebody who works in Fort McMurray. Many, many weeks in and then a short time back and then gone again. Those who have worked overseas. This past week, we reminded those people who left homes, who left families to go across an ocean to defend our freedoms. Not knowing if they would come back, but They left. We know that we, we know experiences to some degree that feeling, that emotional event of when a person leaves and we stay behind. Prior to becoming a pastor and moving to Edmonton here, when uh, we lived in BC, I, I was in business and had a territory to cover that went from Prince Rupert up to Fort St. John to Valmont and Hunter Mile House, if you know the province. That's basically northern BC that I had to cover every single month. And so there were many weeks that I would be gone on the road. I saw a beautiful country. BC is a beautiful province. But it is a long, lonely road of hundreds of kilometers by yourself. And you know you're in the middle of nowhere in Canada when you don't even get CBC radio anymore. And there are some places I couldn't even get CBC. And this is before satellite radios were were commonplace. But I would travel these places. Now, on, on the evening before we left... It was common practice for us to spend some time together as a family where we would go out for dinner we would go to a movie we would do some shopping uh, we would we would just go to the mall or we would, we would spend time together and now the morning would come when I would be leaving. I would typically wait for the kids to get off to school or off to daycare and'd wait for Nadine to head off to work before I left but before we went at times we would we would try and find that moment to pray together we would pray for things like safe travels we would Pray for a productive week that I would have as I was leaving town. And I would pray that God will look after the family. I know the first, the first 100 kilometers out of, out of town I would often spend in prayer that God would watch over, that I would entrust the care of my family into his hands while I was gone. I'm sure there's many people here who have experienced those sorts of things firsthand as well, wanting to pray for a loved one before they leave. If not, I think you at least understand the impulse, the urge to do so. Because it reveals a great deal about our affections for our family and our commitment to God. And as we open our Bibles today into John 17, and we look at verse 9 going forward, we see that Jesus is speaking from a similar sentiment here. He's praying explicitly for the men that have been his closest companions for many years now. They have lived together. They have worked together. They have gone through many trials and many joys together, but the hour has now come. Jesus is soon to depart. And as he leaves, he offers a prayer for them. A prayer that expresses his love. It expresses his concern. And it's a prayer that as he entrusts himself, as he entrusts those who have been following him, to the care of the Father. And in doing so, it specifically prays for their protection. He prays for their unity. And he prays for their mission. And as you can see from the title of today's sermon, The theme that runs throughout this prayer, implicitly and explicitly, is holiness. This idea of holiness, simply put, is is God's desire for us to be a distinct people. Distinct from those around us who belong to the world. That we would be set apart by the standard of God and by his desires for us to live by. Rather than living by the world's. Now, this is not a call for us to lock ourselves inside of our church buildings. It's not a call for us to shut off the outside world. It's better understood to be a call for us to be in the world, but not of the world. And as we strive to live according to God's commands and His purposes, amid the hostilities that we can encounter in this world, we can do so confident of this, confident of the Lord's protection, but also confident in our need to remain unified as followers of Jesus Christ, as we seek to live out the mission that he's given us to do. Now, as we start reading this passage, like a parent who's pointing out their kids from among a larger group, Jesus begins praying in verse 9 by declaring, I pray for them. I'm not praying for the whole world. I'm praying for them. I'm praying for those that you have given me, for they are yours. All I have is yours and all you have is mine, and glory has come to me through them. Now John is known throughout all of his writings, throughout this gospel, and throughout his letters that he wrote for using dichotomous language, where you'll quite often find these ideas of of light and dark, life and death, good and evil. And he begins here with another one, by contrasting them and the world. Now the world we're referring to here is not this physical created order in which In which we exist it's it's rather a metaphor a metaphor in reference to the unbelieving ungodly realm that exists in our presence it it refers to that which is hostile towards the things of god and to some degree we all understand what he's talking about here because i'm sure many of us if not all of us have found ourselves in those situations and in those places where when people come to learn that you are a christian you can feel a bit of a tension come into the room or, or into the conversation. It's a little bit uncomfortable as they're not quite sure how to respond or what to do with that. That happens to me every time I get a haircut. <laughs> I sit down in the chair. Hi, Mark, what do you do for a living? Well, I'm a pastor. And silence ensues for about the next five minutes. They're not sure what to do with that, right? <laughs> so... <laughs> It's a common thing. It's, it's, it's humorous in some regard. Now I'm prepared for it now, so I usually break the silence, but it's a common thing. But it, sometimes it can be worse than that. Sometimes it's not just an awkward, you know, tension that comes in. Sometimes there can be outright hostility towards people who have a certain faith, to the point where, where we can be labeled bigots. We can be called hypocrites. Some people may think you're judgmental or accuse you of being a Republican if you do that, Right? But Jesus is clear. He's clear that in this case, he's not praying for all of these people who are, now he's not, praying for, he's not avoiding praying for them because they're outside of his love. That, that, that's not the message here. Because remember, John 3.16 is very, very clear that God so loved the world, so much so that he was willing to give his son, so that whoever will come to believe in his son would have eternal life. So there is a hope and a future prayer for the world, but in this particular case, Jesus is not praying for them. In the future when he prays for them, he prays the only prayer he could pray. Lord, may their eyes be opened and may they come to see Jesus as the Son of God. But here it is to them, to those who have made this profession of faith that he's praying, to those who are seeking to live according to God's will, and counted among those people counted among the them are all of those who we will have the opportunity to see baptized today. Because those people have professed publicly the one criteria, that they have believed in their hearts that God raised Jesus from the dead. And they have declared with their mouths that they long for Him to be the Lord of their lives. And as those who are set apart from the world, and are soon to be left behind when Jesus ascends into glory... He prays this for them. He prays, Holy Father, protect them by the power of your name, the name that you gave me, so that they may be one as we are one. While I was with them, I protected them and I kept them safe by that name that you gave me. And none has been lost except one, the one who was doomed to destruction so that scripture would be fulfilled. This is not the first time Jesus has said this, and it will certainly not be the last time he says it in the short time that he has left upon the earth. If the world hated him, it will hate his followers. He was very clear about that. He said it repeatedly, especially on this particular evening. And while he has been walking, and these disciples and Jesus have been walking together these past three years, Jesus has been able to keep them safe. But he knows that as he is now leaving, that they are going to become the prime targets. And so he appeals to them with the phrase, Holy Father. Which is a phrase that Jesus only uses, that John only uses here in his entire gospel. And, And I think it's trying to convey this idea that Jesus is referring to his Heavenly Father saying, Father, watch over them like a father does. With your fatherly heart, care for them, protect them, guard them, keep them. And he says, protect them by the power of his name, which is not a common phrase for us to use these days, but it's an extremely meaningful phrase, especially if you look back into the Old Testament, you'll see that there are various encounters where in various occasions where we will see that a person or God's name and their nature is very, very closely identified as one and the same. Their name and their identity is very closely connected. And so by evoking the name of God, they're making reference to God's identity and his reputation. And in the power of God's name, by evoking that phrase, it is calling upon the acts of God's deliverance in the past and in the future. This would be the, 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 uh, the children's equivalent to two kids in the sandbox having a disagreement and one says, you better leave me alone because my big brother's got my back. A well-known example of where this shows up is in the case of King David. Before he was a king, when he was the age of a junior high student, and he marched out onto the battlefield, and he looked Goliath in the eye, and he said to him, You come against me with sword and spear and javelin, but I come against you in the name of the Lord. If we continue throughout the Old Testament through prophets and psalms, we see that this phrase comes up time and time again. We don't use it much today, but the principle is important and still remains. Because there is still power in the name of God. There is still power in our big brother Jesus Christ and our Heavenly Father. And we today can take trust and confidence in that. And in the nature of this prayer of protection that Jesus prays, he begins by praying, first and foremost, that they would be one as he and the Father are one. Now, it's important to note here that he's not praying that the disciples would become one. He's praying that they would remain to be one. And the distinction, the distinction here is important. Because it's not that he's praying that we would work towards unity. That someday in the future we would have unity. He's praying that we would continually seek to preserve the unity which already exists. Hence the protection that Jesus is seeking is protection against anything that would erode the unity that we should already have. Because there are dark forces that are striving to break up that unity. There are dark forces that would love nothing more than to divide and conquer the people of God and weaken us and keep us from fulfilling the mission that we've been given. And this is fresh in the minds of Jesus and his disciples because just hours earlier, they watched as one of their own. They watched as Judas walked out the door. And in the very moment that Jesus is praying this, Judas is plotting against them so this is very fresh in their minds as Jesus prays these things. Now the unity between followers of Christ is likened to the unity that exists within the Trinity, with, with the unity that exists within the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Now, now obviously there's aspects of that that we just can't fulfill. We just, we're, it's not within our ability to do as, as human beings that walk upon this earth. But the analogy still holds true in In some aspects. There are some relational ties that still have meaning, that we can take to heart and that we can strive to live out. And there's four of them I'd like to share with you. One of these relational ties that we need to seek to preserve and fight against having eroded, the first one is unity and love. That we would be one in love. Earlier in Jesus' teaching that night, he had said to the disciples, I want you to be known by one thing. I, command, I give you this final command, love one another as I have loved you. That we are to be united, we are to be one in love. And if that's going to happen, then we need to be on guard. And we need to protect ourselves within this place, within the body of Christ, that we call West Meadows Baptist Church, and beyond within the fellowship of believers. But we need to protect ourselves against things like hate, and friction in relationships, that those go addressed if they creep up. We need to be on guard against an unforgiving spirit within ourselves. If we feel a sense of arrogance welling up, we need to push that down. And if bitterness from the present or the past still exists in our hearts, we need to do away with that because it does not serve to protect unity and love. Another one is unity and purpose. Jesus has been teaching throughout this discourse that we show love through obedience and that by obeying We can go forward to have fruit-bearing lives that are good witnesses to other people. We have a purpose as followers of Jesus Christ. And under that purpose, we need to protect against certain things as well, such as one-upmanship, things such as having an uncooperative spirit that can lead to isolation and individualism. We need to be on guard against stubborn hearts and stubborn wills. Because if we're not unified in purpose, we are on an island unto ourselves and that would serve to erode the unity that we are called to have. A third one is unity in truth. All of us who are children of God, all of us who have come to recognize that Jesus Christ is the crucified and risen Lord and Savior of our lives are unified under truth. That is the foundational truth in which we are unified. And we do need to guard against things which would serve to erode that. Against lies. Against chronic unbelief. But also looking within ourselves and making sure that we have a willingness to learn from others. That as iron sharpens iron, we can come together in unity and help one another grow and solidify under that banner of unity. And then finally, holiness. All of us who are in Christ have been set apart by god's standards and under that we simply need to protect against all sorts of sin sin will erode our holiness individually and collectively anything that is contrary to the perfect will and character of god needs to be guarded against now if we are going to remain unified this is by no means an easy list i will never tell you or promise you this is easy You might feel the weight and the burden of this list descend upon you as we talk about these things. And and it's appropriate in some regard that we do because that means we see that we take it seriously. That it has importance and that it's going to be a struggle. But here's the thing. If we try and do this on our own, we're going to stumble. Because preserving unity under this banner is, is beyond us to do in our humanness because we are all fallen. We all suffer from the same trouble we're all fallen it is only by the power found in the name of god by trusting upon him and turning to him will we be able to preserve the unity that jesus prays for his disciples in this passage the psalmist encapsulates this beautifully in psalm 133 when he says how good and how pleasant it is when god's people live together in unity for there the lord bestows his blessing For there the Lord bestows his blessing. And if Jesus thought it necessary to pray for this kind of unity for his followers, how much more so should we regularly be praying for that unity amongst ourselves? That we would be able to uphold that banner. That's the first thing Jesus prays for, that we would have protection from. Things that would erode our unity as believers. But here's the second thing. Jesus goes on to pray for protection, very specifically from the evil one. When he says this in the next verses. I have given them your word and the world has hated them. For they are not of the world any more than I am of the world. My prayer is not that you take them out of the world. But that you protect them. That you protect them from the evil one. Now all of us were at a point in our journey towards Christ. Where we were part of the world. And that could be defined by we didn't, we didn't understand the things of God. Some of us in our testimonies we may actually have been hostile To the things of God. And the disciples as well. There is a point in their journey when they were part of the world. But then they heard the truth. Then they sought to seek to obey God. They placed their trust in Jesus Christ. And in that moment, they became citizens of a new nation. They became citizens of heaven. No longer does their spiritual passport read on the cover the world. But instead it says, heavenly realm. They are no longer of a worldly mindset, but they have been taken into heaven and that heavenly worldview as they become separated to preserve and fulfill the things of God. And this is a source of hostility in the world because the world very often can't stand what it can't control and it doesn't like what it doesn't understand. You have explicitly seen examples of this in many lives here if you get talking to people's stories of what they encounter in the world on a daily basis. Because we have well-founded and very defendable beliefs that are often rejected and mocked in the world. If you're a university student, you face this daily. It takes courage to stand on the university campus and profess yourself to be a Christian. Immense courage to do that. There are good Christian men and women in the world world of politics who receive little or negative media attention. And that's all they get. And in society in general, whether it be in the workplace or in the marketplace, if it's in our schools, whether it be in our clubs or in the hockey arenas around this country, to openly state and defend the statutes of God is very, very difficult. And you risk being labeled in a negative sense by doing that. Now, none of this should surprise us, though. Because we have an opponent. The opponent that is here referred to as the evil one. Other places referred to as Satan. And all of his followers. And i got to remind us all today, he is real. And he is active in this world. And from the very beginning until his very end, he will oppose the things of God, and he will oppose the followers of God. He sought to defeat Jesus... And thought he was victorious in killing him upon the cross. But his perceived victory became his greatest defeat. Because Jesus was raised victorious and became Lord over all. And that evil one that is very real and very active and needs to be taken very seriously also needs to be known as a defeated foe. And while we may first face persecution... We may face troubles and difficulties in this world. While the world at times may reject us, mock us, and hate us, I want to remind you, ladies and gentlemen, that the evil one has no power over you, which you do not allow him to have. Because you are washed in the blood of the Lamb. You are followers of Jesus Christ. And he reigns superior and victorious and sovereign over all. And there is power in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen? i going to find my spot again. At times, this will be very difficult. This will be a heavy burden. It's not easy to bear that cross of standing for Christ in the world. At times, it will even cause us to turn our focus, to, to say things like, Lord Jesus, come quickly. I'm sure you've said it, and I know I've said it. And that day will come. That day will come when he will return, and he will gather together all of those who have faithfully followed him and take them to be with him eternally in heaven. But for now, for now, Jesus prays that we would not be removed. He prays we would not be removed, but instead, he prays that we would lean into the wind. He prays that we would press on and that we would stay in the fight. That we would stay in the fight under the power of the Holy Spirit who is in us and under the protection of God who is for us. But it's not without purpose. See, there is purpose for us to stay in the world. There is purpose for us to stay in the fight and to lean into the wind because we have been given a lead role in a mission to continue the work that Jesus began. And that's what he speaks of here in these next couple of verses and continuing into next week's sermon as we will close off this series. He says these words, sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I have sent them into the world. For them I sanctify myself, that they too may truly be sanctified. If you've been around the church for a period of time, you may have come across this word. We don't use it all the time, but if you read scriptures, sometimes in sermons and conversations, you'll hear the word sanctifier or sanctification. There's a good chance a lot of us don't fully understand or know what that means, and that's okay. It's not a common word, but here's what it is. It's essentially a technical term. It's, it's Christianese, if you will, for being set apart for God, for, for being set apart for his purposes. It's synonymous with words like holiness, with words like sacred, like dedicated to God. To help you understand what that looks like, what that means, you think of it this way. If you have a possession that only you use, and it's only used for your specific task, kind of like mom's good china at Christmas, okay? We don't, use it, we don't use it for cereal, right? It's mom's good china at Christmas. Or if there's a room in the house that no one is allowed into, except special company, it's always spotless. There's still plastic on the furniture, right? This company never seems to come over, but it's for them. It's for them. You know, these, things, these are examples of being set apart, of being dedicated for special use determined by you. Now, keeping those examples in mind, that, that while Jesus is praying to his heavenly Father to sanctify us, that we are sent into the world, he's saying, you are God's special possession. You are his special possession. He has given you a special purpose. He's given you a special task to live out in this world, that we've been set apart as a special possession with a special purpose. And now he goes on to say in this passage that our sanctification occurs through God's word. Now he's not saying that God's word is just true. He's saying God's word is truth. It's a noun. God's word is truth. And here's what that means. Here's the significance of that. He's not saying that we are set apart ...by God's Word, and God's Word has to somehow conform to some external standards... ...he's saying we have been set apart by God's Word, and God's Word is the truth. God's Word is which everything else is measured up against. Nothing external to itself. And if we will abide in this truth of God and His Word... ...if we will allow it to guide our thoughts, to guide our actions, to guide our beliefs then it has a transforming effect. And that transforming effect allows us to become set apart from the rest of the world view that you see in the world around you. This is where we get that statement, in the world, but not of the world. That we will be in the world, but not of the world. And this was something that Peter would go on later to speak about in his letters to the churches that were scattered As he urged them to continue living godly lives among the people of this world. And here's what he says in in 1 Peter. He says, dear friends, I urge you as aliens and strangers in the world to abstain from sinful desires which wage war against your soul. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they may accuse you of doing wrong... They may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day that he visits us. As citizens of heaven, live as aliens and strangers on earth. Those terms, aliens and strangers, there's a distinction there. It's saying, not of this world, in this world, but not of this world. Do not yield to the sinful, natural desires that exist within us, but instead preserve holiness but also as part of the mission to reveal the grace and the truth of God, not only with word, but also in action. So that then when the world sees our consistent, good, upright, moral, God-honoring lives, they then have an opportunity to be influenced by that. To come and ask you, what is the difference? Why do you seem foreign to all the others? There's something alien about you. And in those actions that lead to testimony, it will lead some to salvation. It will lead some to salvation. You know, and every time I read this, this passage in 1 first, in first Peter chapter 2, a question comes into my mind that I always have to process and examine myself against. And I invite you to consider if you would examine yourself against it as well. When I look at my actions, when I look at my beliefs, Do I look like an alien, or do I look like the locals? Who's influenced who? Do I look more like an alien, like a citizen of heaven, or do I look more like the locals and my actions and beliefs? Now, I'm not suggesting that we need to retreat from the world to preserve our holiness. I'm not suggesting we need to lock ourselves in the churches to protect our set-apartness. Because if we did that, we're not fulfilling the mission. If we did that, we can't fulfill the mission to go forth and be salt and light that Jesus has called us to be. We will not be able to exude our influence and bring others to know the truth of the word that they too may come to know Jesus personally. And next week, we're going to speak more specifically about that mission. And we're going to define that mission that every single one of us has been given. And needs to consider our role in. But today I'm going to close. With this. So far we've seen three people come forward. In the waters of baptism. And now. Following what we've just talked about. We have an opportunity to see a few more. As our Mandarin brothers and sisters come forward. In baptism as well. And in a way as you watch these baptisms. Each one is a living summary of what we've talked about here today. Each one of their own words will tell a story about how they heard the truth of Jesus Christ, they received it, they believed it, they placed their trust in Him. And at that moment, they entered into this thing we've been talking about called sanctification, where they became set apart, where they were God's special possession and given that special purpose. And with that new citizenship, they began to live that life as aliens and strangers in this land, as they declare the grace and the truth of God to all that they encounter. As we know, this is not easy. As we're familiar, there will be difficult days ahead for them. That's just go, That goes with the nature of being set apart from the world. But in these acts of baptism, as each one goes public to declare their position in Christ, one thing that they're also doing is they are claiming territory from the evil one of this world. They are claiming that territory, and he doesn't like it when one crosses over. He doesn't like it when one takes that territory from him. And at times, in my experience as a pastor, it is common for people to have a couple difficult days following their baptism. And I have seen it time and time again enough to choose that it's not coincidence. That it is the evil one who is trying to trip them up, to stumble, to make them question and doubt that position, that proclamation that they have made. But don't forget, he is a defeated foe. He is a defeated foe and we are protected by the Holy Spirit in us and the name of God over us. But Let us also remember that we've all been placed into a fellowship of believers and that we can stand united to support and encourage one another in love and in truth. So in that spirit of unity and in that spirit of fellowship let's join in celebrating with with these who are coming forward to publicly declare their faith in Jesus Christ.